This is Religion and Theology, a podcast from the Center for Theology and Religious Studies. Today's episode is a republishing of a lecture held by Professor Jeff Love with the title Between Kant and Hegel, Alexandre Kozhev and the End of Law. And this was a recording from a seminar held by the End of Law project and podcast. And I will now give the word to Morten Björk, who will chair the seminar and give an introduction to Professor Love. Welcome everybody to the second Law, Theology and Culture Seminar, organized with the End of Law Project. My name is Morten Björk. I'm a researcher in theology at Lund University and Oxford University, and your host today, together with Torbund Otterich-Hansson, who is a legal scholar from Gothenburg, based in Today we are honored and even more happy to have Jeff Love here. Jeff is a jurist but today working as a research professor of German and Russian at Clemson University. And he's also a translator from a wide range of languages, such as German, French, and Portuguese in Russia. And he's based in Portugal also. And he's written a series of important works, such as his study on Tolstoy, the overcoming of history in war and peace, his introduction to the great Russian author, Tolstoy, a guide for the perplexed, and his books, book on Alexandre Korshev, Black Serpent. He's also translated Korshev's Atheism to English and Antonio Lobo Antunes, Until Stones Become Lighter Than Water, a Portuguese author. And now he's working on a project on, Russian, on the Russian Christian philosopher Fedorov, Nikolai Fedorov, Fedorovich Fedorov, and on his view on immortality, which I'm personally very interested in due to my own interests. Uh, but today, uh, Jeff will talk about Alexander Koshev and the end of law. Thank you, Morten, for the introduction. Thank you very much for having me. Um, and uh, it is uh, delightful to meet you all, if it is only virtually. Uh, I did actually look up the website, and uh, it's, a, it's a project that's uh, very interesting in terms of uh, Koshev's own concerns as I think uh, we'll see. Um, well, uh, I will uh, today, I'll, I wanna give uh, something of an overview, if you like, of uh, Alexandra Kozhev. Uh, my talk is divided into three parts. The first biographical sketch, um, he had a very interesting life as a very interesting person. So I think it's uh, a worthwhile uh, thing to give him a biographical sketch. That's a bit more than what Heidegger would insist that a thinker should give, should or should be given to a thinker. Um, I'll then uh, go into uh, very quickly, uh, probably a rather polemical view of his uh, most well-known work, uh, which is the introduction to the reading of Hegel, which was published in 1947. Uh, and then I will couple that with the discussion of a manuscript that was not published in his lifetime, 
Uh, in fact, he died in 1968 and the manuscript was published in uh, 1981 uh, on law. Uh, and I'm going to talk about, to some extent, the difference between those two works, the tension that one might be able to identify between the two works. Um, and then I will open things for questions. I, I apologize. Normally, I would not give a talk that is quite so long. And I shall try not to be uh, make it boring or tedious. But uh, I think there's a quite a, given the relative obscurity of Khrushchev in, internationally, I think it's uh, probably incumbent upon me to give a broader order, overview and to do a little bit more than might normally be the case. Uh, so there will be detail missing as well. Um, in any event, um, I'll just go to it now, and um, I look forward to your questions or concerns at uh, when I'm finally done. All right. So the title of my talk, of course, is Between Kant and Hegel, Alexandre Kozhev and the End of Law. The title of my talk refers to a pervasive tension in Alexandre Kozhev's work. On the one hand, there is the Hegelian Kozhev, the famous and enigmatic lecturer who exercised enormous influence on French intellectual life in the inter and post-war periods, declaring the end of history and its expression in the universal and homogeneous state, the state akin to what was taking form in the Soviet Union under Stalin at the time. On the other hand, there's a remarkably Kantian Kozhev, who puts the question as to whether history can ever come to an end, and thus whether the universal and homogeneous state, a state no longer needing laws to address disputes or differences among its citizens, would ever be realizable, or is, in his own words, not rather, and I quote, a limit case uh, because homogeneity is never in fact absolute, end quote. Today, I'll present these two sides of Kozhev's thought in the manner of an overview. I first present an account of the Hegelian Kozhev with reference to the lectures he gave in the 1930s that were published under the editorial guidance of Raymond Queneu, and I mentioned them as the, uh, in French, it's Introduction à la lecture de Hegel, and then they were published in 1947. I then present the more elusively Kantian Kozhev with reference to a large manuscript, over 500 pages in the autograph copy, on law that was, that's entitled uh, Outline of a Phenomenology of Law, or in French, Esquisse d'une Phénoménologie du Droit, uh, that was uh, written in 1943, but not published until 1981. I conclude with some speculative comments regarding the relation of the, uh, these two different aspects of Kozhev's thought. So before proceeding to those texts, uh, let me give a short sketch of uh, uh, Kozhev's life and works. For Kozhev is neither, as you know, really well known outside of France, uh, nor is his uh, curious life devoid of interest for its own sake. Alexander Kozhev was born Alexander Vladimirovich Kozhevnikov in 1902, part of an affluent and talented uh, Moscow family. His uncle was the famous painter Vasily Kandinsky. At a time of immense artistic and intellectual vitality, the so-called Silver Age of Imperial Russian culture. The Silver Age was in particular a period of philosophical and theological ferment brought about in large part by the pervasive influence of uh, Dostoevsky's genre-shattering novels and two of Imperial Russia's most influential thinkers, Vladimir Solovyov, whose dates are 1853 to 1900, the Russian Hegel, as they call him, and Nikolai Nikolaevich Fyodorov, 
Uh, Morton mentioned him. Uh, his dates are 1829 to uh, 1903. A list of significant thinkers who followed in their footsteps is long, contains some names still familiar outside Russia, primarily to specialists. Uh, you have Nikolai Berdyaev, Sergei Bulgakov, Pavel Flavensky, Ivan Ilyin, uh, Lev Karsavin, Dmitry Mirishkovsky, Vasily Rozanov, Lev Shistov, and uh, others. That Kozhev does not figure among them has to do with relative youth and the peculiar turn his life took after the revolution of 1917. Kozhev nonetheless shares much with them, especially his impressive erudition, for this was an age of polymaths, and the theologian like Florensky, to take but one example, uh, was also an accomplished uh, mathematician with multiple languages, as well as a dizzying array of scientific and cultural interests. Kozhev left Russia in the aftermath of 1917, he was imprisoned by the Bolsheviks, but managed to survive lingering in Russia until 1920, when he fled to Germany with a friend. Gorzhev established himself primarily in Berlin, though he attended university in Heidelberg as well. At Heidelberg, Gorzhev studied with the well-known neo-Kantian Heinrich Rikat, as well as Karl Jaspers. He also pursued extensive studies of ancient Greek philosophy, in addition to religions of the East, in particular Buddhism and Taoism, and Eastern languages, uh, primarily Chinese, Sanskrit, and Tibetan. Um, he could read all three, by the way, but he preferred Sanskrit. Um, he obtained his PhD in philosophy and oriental languages, Chinese and Tibetan, under Jaspers in 1926. His uh, dissertation, which was over 600 pages long, was entitled The Religious Philosophy of Vladimir Solovyov. Khrushchev moved to Paris in the same year with his wife, uh, and he continued his studies with an, invested, an intensive investigation of mathematics and quantum physics that led to his large work, it's a fascinating work, The Idea of Determinism in Classical and Modern Physics, which he presented to the faculty of the Sorbonne, but it was never, uh, he never was given a degree for it. And I'm not quite, no one is really quite sure why not because uh, it was a treatise that uh, uh, people talked about at the time as, uh, as being very, very, very interesting. Um, Kozhev is famous for living quite extravagantly in the late 1920s. He had large holdings in the company of the, that makes the cheese, La Vache Kiri. Uh, but unfortunately, in 1929, he lost all his holdings, most of his money, uh, and was forced to cast about for other kinds of work. His friend, Alexander Coiret um, decided to help him out and to have him replace him for a year at the Ecole des Études in Paris on a, uh, to do a course on the religious thought of Hegel. Uh, Kozhev was only supposed to teach for one year, uh, but such was his popularity amongst a small but ardent group of students that he continued the seminar until 1939. A word about his students. His students are very Many of them are, were, became quite famous. Jacques Lacan was one. Uh, Maurice Merleau-Ponty was another. Henri Corbin was another. Um, Raymond Queneau, of course, was yet another. André Breton was another. Uh, Raymond Aron. It's a who's who of, uh, I guess, the interwar French intellectual, uh, intellectuals. And he beguiled them. Uh, and they really became fascinated with him. 
and he had enormous success uh, with, uh, with this group. And it's one of the reasons why he is so influential in French intellectual life to this day is because his tentacles can be found uh, in, uh, in all those who are influenced by Lacan, uh, by those who are influenced by Althusser, even though Althusser looked out upon Kojav negatively, and even people like Derrida and Foucault, who also responded negatively to his, uh, to his influence. Anyhow, um, after uh, the fall of France, Kojav fled to the south of France, uh, to uh, near Marseille. He wrote two important works. One is called On Authority from 1942, uh, and the other work I mentioned, The Outline of a Phenomenology of Law, which he wrote in 1943. He joined the French Resistance in 1944, um, and there's rumors that he was, had been assisting Soviet intelligence at least since 1941. After the war, Kojev changed considerably. He was invited by a former student, Robert Marjolin, to join the Directorate of Foreign Economic Relations. And he soon became a very powerful figure in the French government as a significant and highly respected and feared bureaucrat. He worked closely with the future French Prime Minister, uh, Raymond Barre, and leading functionaries like Olivier Wemser and uh, Bernard Clapier. And uh, he is uh, considered to be somewhat of an eminence grise, in the French economic policy of the 1950s and early 1960s. Uh, he was a specialist in trade policy and contributed uh, importantly to the formation of the European Economic Union. And he was a strong advocate for European economic integration. He is one of the fathers of the European Union. Uh, thus it is so, sort of appropriate, if you like, if such a thing can ever be appropriate, that he, was, uh, he died literally well giving a speech to a delegation of the common market on June 4th, 1968. And uh, they have a recording of it. It's actually rather gruesome where you hear him stop in mid, in mid sentence and collapse. And uh, um, anyhow, um, during his years as a high government functionary, Kojev continued to write philosophical works, primarily in the Galian vein producing several substantial texts, an introduction to the system of science from 1953 called the uh, Concept, Time and Discourse in English, of course, uh, three volumes. And then he did a three volume, an enormous work of over 1300 pages called An Attempt at a Reasoned History of Pagan Philosophy of which he published only one volume in his lifetime in 1968. He also wrote a work in 1953 devoted to Kant, which is very, very interesting. Uh, and he uh, is well known in the United States, at least, for his uh, um, debate with Leo Strauss in a book that's published called *On Tyranny* about the Xenophon. Uh, he was a he was a uh, a friend of Strauss's going back to the 1930s, and Strauss had enormous respect for him. Thus, if you take any survey of American or North American scholar, English language scholarship. The majority of scholars who work on Kojev are those are associated with uh, the school of Strauss, if you like. Um, he also corresponded with Carl Schmidt and gave a talk at Carl Schmidt's invitation in 1957. Uh, he famously uh, considered Carl Schmidt the only person of interest to talk to in Germany. He said this in a, uh, in a, in a, in a side in, in the 1960s. 
Um, and uh, he's, uh, Jakob Taubes found him the most important uh, eschatological thinker of his time, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, put simply, uh, he had a very interesting life divided into two, into, into several different phases, as you can see, but two primarily different phases, a, pa- a phase of teaching and a phase of bureaucratic action or action as a bureaucrat, a man of the world, so to speak. Uh, and his influence amongst people who knew him and, uh, and uh, amongst other important figures from whether you, as disparate as Jacques Lacan and Carl Schmitt is, is quite intriguing and significant. Uh, there's a correspondence with Schmidt that people go over and try to and analyze. There's a correspondence with Leo Strauss, of course, that's become uh, quite important to a lot of people. He corresponded briefly with a number of different individuals. And so he's a striking figure because he's he does have a good deal of influence. You have to really tease out the, the influence in various areas, especially in French thought. But because he influenced the generation of the 60s so much, he has had much broader influence than people might think. Uh, certainly since the French thinkers of, the, of, say, people like Foucault, and Derrida, and Deleuze, Althusser have had such enormous influence in the Anglophone world, that Kojève is, a, is a, a real presence, if a presence that is, uh, if you like, covert or hidden. So um, that's, his, that's his life, basically. Uh, and I just, before going into talking about the works more specifically, I should like to say that he only published two books in his lifetime. And the first book, the uh, introduction to the uh, reading of Hegel, was published in 47 by, uh, by Cunot, at the insistence of Cunot. And Kojève did not like the work and did not want to have it published, but he uh, allowed uh, Cunot to go ahead because, as, he, as Kojève said, he did not want to take himself too seriously. And you can take that with however you wish to. Um, the second work, of course, the first volume of the attempt at a uh, recent history of uh, pagan philosophy was published in 68, uh, one of three volumes. And, it was just, and uh, it's a considerably less accessible work and said much less influence. But that's all he published, really, uh, outside occasional articles and a few comptes rendus. Uh, no other major works were published in his lifetime. He left a lot uh, unpublished, 26 boxes worth, actually. And they are now reside at the Bibliothèque Nationale in France. Um, a number of these works have been published. Um, there's another work that's of particular interest. Um, he, confide, he gave it to Georges George Bataille, who I should have mentioned was another of his most ardent students. Uh, and uh, he gave it to Bataille before fleeing for Southern France in 1941. It's an interesting work for people in my area because he wrote it in Russian. It's huge, 923 pages. Uh, and his handwriting is so difficult to read that it has taken a team, literally of seven people, five years just to transcribe it. And they're only on page 790 still. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and uh, it's considered this uh, a fast name uh, manuscript. He wrote, wrote it at white heat between 1940 and 41. Apparently gave one copy to the Soviet embassy that they believe was burned as the Soviet embassy uh, uh, closed down after the, in the Nazi, just in anticipation or just before the Nazis took over Paris. Uh, and the other copy he gave to uh, Bataille and they found it only in the late nineties. So it's interesting. Um, that's just another little note. Okay, sorry to go on about that. All right, so I shall begin my first discussion today on the, my discussion of the Hegelian 
Kozhev by referring to what must be Kozhev's most striking single claim, namely that the highest form of emancipation is suicide. A claim made clearly in an unpublished Russian manuscript from 1931 entitled Atheism, it's published now in English translation and several others, and repeatedly in the uh, Hegel lectures. Uh, Kozhev polemically refers to, uh, or uh, a classic Kozhevian uh, statement is, human existence is mediated, a mediated suicide. Um, now this claim sounds so outrageous, so contrary to good sense, that many are tempted simply to dismiss Kozhev on that account, unless of course they are acolytes of Schopenhauer, and it's not all, at all clear to me that Schopenhauer has many acolytes outside of the artistic milieu where his thought once prospered. It is no accident that I mentioned Schopenhauer, however. Kozhev's thought reflects some of Schopenhauer's most basic doctrines, a point all the more interesting given Kozhev's status as a commentator on Hegel. But as we shall see, Kozhev's commentary contains many layers showing many influences and the affinity with Schopenhauer plays out against other important affinities as well. If Schopenhauer bids us to free ourselves from the will, Kozhev urges us to free ourselves from the most pernicious restriction on our freedom, the imperative to self-preservation, a way to freedom, I might add, itself by determined by what it opposes. This may sound very much like Schopenhauer if we ignore the striking dualism that Kozhev constructs. This dualism establishes a basic difference between what Kozhev refers to as animal desire and distinctively human desire. The former being wholly dominated by the imperative to self-preservation, uh, the latter expressing itself primarily through resistance to that imperative. For Kozhev, we become truly human when we risk our, secu our security knowingly, and the greatest risk that we can take in that respect is to knowingly offer up our own lives. The primary example he provides is known to all of you, well, only known to the Kozhev specialists, I suppose, I suppose but it's known to Hegelians as well, the contest for recognition or supremacy Kozhev reads into the famous discussion of the master-slave relation in subdivision A of chapter four of the Phenomenology of the Spirit. The master is the one who faces death, this is in Kozhev's account, without flinching, and his opponent, if he flinches, becomes the slave. The master shows no fear of death. The slave is defined by that fear. Mastery is a kind of freedom understood precisely as the absence of concern for self-preservation. The slave is, of course, only a slave and becomes the creature of suffering that turns its entire existence into an attempt to be free from suffering, to negate suffering by negating the causes of suffering. But why does a fight take place? Kozhev's explanation is crucial to his thinking. The fight takes place as a result of human, not animal, desire. For Kozhev, desire... Is profound, human desire is profoundly negative. Kozhev illustrates the point with homely examples, and he actually describes animal desire as simple appetite, the desire for food to satisfy hunger. You destroy something to ingest it. Kozhev claims that this desire negates its object. It does so by ingesting or transforming the object in the process of ingestion. The plant is thus transformed by ingestion into nutrients that maintain the animal's existence. All animal desire is transformative in this way. The animal negates by transforming for the sake of self-preservation. Kozhev insists, however, that distinctively human desire is different from animal desire. The difference comes clear if we consider the object of desire. The animal takes for an object whatever can satisfy its hunger. The animal's desire is material. 
Human desire is distinguished by the fact that it is not directly material, but the desire, and this is an awkward expression of Kojev's, the desire of the desire of another. This clumsy locution describes a fundamental shift. Human desire does not relate to an object, but to another human being as a being with its own desires. Moreover, human desire is distinguished by the difference in the type of negation involved. Rather than negating the material object in an act of ingestion, human desire negates another desire by supplanting it, or as Kojev emphasizes, by forcing one party to recognize the desire of another by adopting it as its own. I negate your desire by compelling you to recognize my own in its stead. Human desire from this perspective is pure, brutal self-assertion or the assertion of one desire over another. Human desire is in essence desire for recognition of my desire over your desire. This desire cannot be satisfied until all desires other than mine or ours have been eliminated. The desire for the desire of the other is inherently hegemonic and universalist, since nothing less than universal recognition can offer satisfaction. I quote Kojev, man can be satisfied only by being recognized universally, end of quote. Why is this so? Kojev holds that we cannot be sure of ourselves that we are not mad until we have eliminated all opposition to our own forms of desire. This is an extraordinary claim as well, and it merits careful comment. Kojev creates an analogy between animal and human desire in this particular respect. Both result from an overwhelming desire for self-preservation. In the case of the animal, ingesting various foods is necessary for the continu continuation of the animal's existence. The basic motive of all animal activity that remains unquestioned. In the case of the human, the desire for the desire of others is based on the need to assert one's own desires over those of others as a way of assuring one's reality, that the way one lives is indeed the real and only way, that one comes into possession of the full and final truth. The full and final truth is universal recognition. One kind of life prevails over all others, such that no rival way of evaluating things remains. One kind of life becomes universal and homogeneous. The slave is emancipated by creating his own reality and by assuring that the reality so created be recognized and accepted by all. This is the slave revolt or revolution for Kojev, the final revolution that brings history to a close. This quest for freedom is what concerns Kojev. The master is a dead end or impasse. Freedom is not even an issue for the master. The peculiar irony is that the master's freedom from the fear of death leaves the master stagnant and unable to change. For Kojev, this is not exactly a problem. Indeed, the problem is the slave. For it is the slave who begins and makes history. He refers to the master as the catalyst for the beginning of history. Put simply, history is precisely the narrative of the slave's attempt to attain emancipation from servitude, or in other words, universal recognition. Now, this history should trouble us to pause. Criticism of Kojev's focus on the master-slave relation is not lacking as a sort of governing metaphor. Robert Pippin, for example, is one of Kojev's fiercest critics precisely on account of what he sees as Kojev's extravagant simplification of and overemphasis on subdivision A of chapter four in the phenomenology. I might add in parenthesis that 
Pippin's criticism seemed to have something to do with the limitations of the English edition uh, or translation of the text, which excises about 300 pages of the French text. Um, but Pippin still has a point. Kojev grants enormous significance to the master-slave relation as a sort of paradigm of history. It is central to the narrative he constructs in his lectures and appears to be applied as the fundamental structure that emerges within all historical process. History for Kojev is struggle, though it would be too much to say that it is the history of class struggle. Nonetheless, history is constituted by a struggle that begins with the fear of death and ends with the vanquishing of that fear. As Kojev notes, if both parties to the initial struggle die, there's obviously no further struggle. This is the case as well if one party dies. Either possibility precludes further struggle. Only the refusal to engage in the original struggle to the death creates a new struggle that is oriented precisely to overcome the fear of death that is uh, being imposed on the slave or has imposed on the slave his servile status. This overcoming is quite curious, however. The mastery achieved by the slave seems to be an ignoble mastery because it is the highest expression of the imperative to self-preservation that defines the slave as slave in the first place. If the slave achieves final satisfaction or emancipation from nature and the fear of death, this achievement seems illusory since the slave has not conquered his own natural impulse to live. Indeed, the irony of the slave's success is that it is at the same time a terrible failure, a kind of bestialization. The slave in conquering nature allows himself to be conquered by nature, an irony that underscores that the slave does not free himself from the fear of death, but chooses rather to be completely ruled by it to the point where the victorious slave has become nothing more than a beast enslaved to an appetite it cannot control. The slave's emancipation is at once the most complete enslavement but as we shall see, it is also a kind of suicide. Any decent empirical historian would balk at the reductivism of this interpretation of history, which claims in essence that all history is oriented to salvation or salvation history. I recall Heidegger's famous comment, alle Geschichte wird zur Heilsgeschichte. All history is aimed at emancipation from struggle, at an end of history, at overcoming history. History is the nightmare or reign of error or slaughter, the slaughter bank from which we seek to awake. Here, another layer seems to emerge if we are wont to see in this pattern reflections of the Christian salvation narrative, where one is thrust into the world only to seek, in the final account, to save oneself from and through it. Though, as with the other narratives woven into Kojev's commentary on Hegel, the similarity is not exact or ambiguous because Christian salvation tends to reject the narrative of mastery over nature as an expression of grotesque selfishness, of self-preservation grown into a horrific collective egoism. But we can talk about that. That's a bit of an overstatement. Um, it is indeed easy to overlook the strangeness of Kozhev's interpretation of history, since it seems, or the, uh, the Christian interpretation, pardon me, of history, since it seems so familiar to us. Why must history be oriented to salvation? Why must history be oriented in any particular way? Can we not conceive of history in other ways? Kozhev's response to these questions is cryptic to say the least, since one may infer, only infer from his focus on the first part of uh, chapter four in the phenomenology, that history is born of the fear of death and has no other possible sense than as an attempt to overcome that fear, either metaphorically 
or quite literally in the doomed sort of technological revolution that Kojev assumes to be the final achievement of the slave having freed itself once and for all. The slave, the slave having freed itself from the fear of death is the curious master of the world in Kojev's uh, language, he calls it le maître du monde, who through technology has overcome death itself. Ironies aside, Kojev affirms here, if anything, the importance of a teleological narrative of history and insists that this is the only possible narrative of history. No other view of history could possibly be maintained because for Kojev, there's no other history than the history of uh, philosophy, a philosoph philosophical attitude to the world understood as the cliche has it, as in quotes, shapes of consciousness. The history, the historian's rejection of such an approach as reductive or ideological is itself ideological. The only refuge then for history is an emancipation, an emancipation that completes and thus negates history, ideology, in, in its most ironic aspect, human life itself. As Kojev notes in the uh, outline, I quote, a purely human universe is inconceivable because without nature, Man is nothingness, pure and simple. But he also says that there is no meaning to human existence without the struggle to overcome nature. Emancipation as the full triumph over nature is nothingness and emptiness because full emancipation here, final freedom is itself nothingness. It cannot even be described as a state because any state presupposes nature or limitation. And for Kojev, nature and limitation seem to be almost synonymous. The slave's victory become as is bestialization, a form of self-immolation of the human, a trenchant irony given the slave's pursuit of self-preservation. This brings me to the other main thread of my discussion, Kojev's, uh, of this part of Kojev, Kojev's notion of wisdom and its relation to the negative. If there are two principal narratives in Kojev's commentary on Hegel, these are the narrative of the master and slave, and the narrative of the final accession to wisdom that, according to Kojev, is Hegel's most enduring and revolutionary contribution to philosophy. It is enduring and revolutionary because it brings an end to philosophy as the love of wisdom. This second narrative has generated a great deal of controversy because Kojev suggested all basic forms of thinking have been articulated such that there is nothing basically new to articulate. He says that history comes to an end with um, alternatively with Napoleon, or indeed later on with Stalin. Um, and Kojet, he says that we have reached a final stage, that of wisdom, and we may go no further than to repeat what has already been thought in some fashion. Kojet's famous claim that history has reached an end derives from this second narrative and is in fact its culmination. Let me describe this narrative in some detail before proceeding to ask a simple but important question. How does the accession to wisdom fit with the narrator, narrative of master and slave? Do they indeed fit together? Are these two versions of the same underlying structure, or are they markedly different expressions of a different underlying narrative? The question is important in grasping Kojev's peculiar challenge to philosophy, but it is also important because the reception of Kojev's commentary has tended to focus on the master-slave relation as against the arguably far more unusual interpretation of wisdom that emerges in the final set of lectures from 1938 and 1939. The reasons for this are obvious. The claim to omnisci omniscience that accompanies Kojev's interpretation of wisdom is provocative and has generally been considered unconvincing or almost puerile irony. 
The wisdom narrative starts with an uncompromising definition. Wisdom is complete or absolute knowledge. Wisdom has already been achieved with the achievement of absolute knowledge in the sage. The latter is defined as follows, and I quote, in regard to the definition of the sage, all philosophers are in agreement. It is indeed very simple and can be set out in a single phrase. The sage is one capable of responding in a comprehensive, indeed satisfying manner to all questions that one may pose to him in regard to his acts and to respond in such a way that the whole of his responses form a coherent discourse. Or even what amounts to the same thing, the sage is the man completely and perfectly conscious of himself." End of quote. And that's from the uh, last set of lectures from 1938-39. The sage or wise man is omniscient. There is no question that he cannot answer, and no answer that he gives may contradict any other answer he gives to other questions. His discourse must be complete and completely consistent. In the interpretation of chapter eight of the phenomenology that follows this definition, Kojev attempts to show that Hegel achieves this wisdom not only by answering all questions that can be posed in history, questions regarding action, but by showing also that no further questions may be asked, or what is the same thing, that all other questions that may be asked lack sense or are in error. Kojev provides justification of his claim regarding Hegel in these 1938-1939 lectures by reference to yet another narrative. Kojev claims this narrative should prove conclusively that wisdom is at hand and that no other narratives or no other narrative can possibly be conceived unless it is conceived as error. Kojev borrows the narrative from the rich Russian theological tradition, though uh, affinities with Feuerbach and Bauer are also evident. It is the orthodox narrative of deification, of man having become God, or uh, you can say theosis or teosis, depending on your Greek teacher. By becoming God, man frees himself of himself. Man becomes nothing or discovers his proper identity as nothing. Kojev seems to reverse the traditional emphasis, however. His deification turns God into man. As a finite deity, ending up in a most peculiar combination, that of finite omniscience. And as Kojev tries to convince us, the only possible omniscience is finite. For, Kojev's, for Kojev, Hegel's phenomenology expresses and overcomes the theological narrative and as such is a profoundly atheist text. Kojev's claim then turns out to be that Hegel has in fact become wise by realizing and developing the only possible form of omniscience or absolute finality that we can imagine, that of the finite God. Kojev expresses his view in a remarkable passage from uh, the fourth of the lectures from 1938 and 1939, uh, a text that I may note is not included in the English translation, but only in the French. And I quote now, it suffices to read a manual of Christian theology, I emphasize Christian, where God is effectively a total and infinite being. And to say after uh, having read the manual, the being in question, that's me. This is simple, of course. Yet even today, it seems to us to be an absurdity, an enormity without equal. And we label as mad anyone who openly makes the affirmation. This means that it is extremely difficult to affirm, that is, seriously. And it is a fact that millennia of philosophical thought have passed before Hegel finally dared to say it. 
It's simply that it was not easy to come to the concept of a Christian God. And then having come to it, it was not easy to identify oneself with this concept, to apply it to oneself. Hegel tells us that this is possible only for the citizen of the universal and homogeneous state. It is only this citizen who may affirm the identity with God without being mad, who may affirm it by being a sage, who may affirm it in revealing thus a reality that is by proclaiming an absolute truth. End of quote. Relaced with a certain irony, this passage brings together several of the main strands of Kozhev's argument as it leads into a more detailed account of the possibility of finite omniscience. The sage is not merely the end of philosophy. The sage must also bring to an end the theological position, and this is only possible if the sage assumes the identity of God. The obvious question is, how may the sage, the finite being, assume the identity of God without contradiction? In other words, how does God become man, or how does man become atheist? Kozhev's answer to this question is quite complicated, hardly surprising given the nature of the question itself. Indeed, Kozhev would expend more effort on attempting to prove that all possible basic shapes of consciousness, as such shapes of action as well, have been passed through uh, and uh, he would, sorry, Kozhev would spend more time trying to prove that all basic forms of consciousness have been passed through than on any other aspect of his interpretation of Hegel. The posthumous publication of his extensive attempts to bring Hegel's thought up to date attests both to this enormous effort and to a pervasive sense of failure that emerges in the increasing technical complexity and ironical stance of his later work. In a word, Kozhev sensed how fragile or absurd his insistence on an end having already come into view might seem, and he struggled for many years to answer his critics and his own doubts. Like Kant, whose 12 categories have invited so much resistance, Kozhev's attempt to show that all possible modes of thought have been articulated has been received with skepticism, if not ridicule. To discuss Kozhev's technical arguments is an absorbing, though ultimately disappointing topic. Uh, and not one I want to develop today, though we can talk about it in the question period if you like. Let me provide here a short superficial answer. The sage emerges when the world has become completely a product of human labor. When the world has become fully a human creation as evinced by the historical unfolding of human self-creation in time. One could argue that the chief importance of Hegel for Kozhev lies in the comprehensiveness of the Hegelian system, its devotion to a complete and seamless interpretation of reality as beholden to the concept divine as time or history, and thus to a final construction of reality as distinctively human. This sounds like a radical constructivism, and in a sense it is. Kozhev argues that distinctively human activity, the basic action of history, is aimed at negating nature as that which is different from or threatening to the human. The distinctively human core of reality is to transform nature into a product of human activity. Where Kozhev differs from the constructivist model is thus in his emphasis on negation. In this respect, Kozhev adopts a key Hegelian trope, the so-called, uh, quote, monstrous power of the negative, we've all heard about the, the ungeheure Macht des Negativen, to describe both the essential movement towards the emancipation of the slave and the ascent to wisdom. Freedom results from the negation of all limitations on human activity. And that is to say, negation becomes complete when nature has been abolished as the regulating power. The slave and the sage replace nature by a negation that is equivalent to the complete self-production of the new human being. 
a being that is distinctively human because it has consciously overcome death. And I'll leave the ironies to that behind for the moment. It should be obvious, however, that this new being is deeply problematic. Has the slave truly achieved emancipation from nature? And if so, does this emancipation amount to much more than a form of collective suicide? Or an extreme form of self-abnegation in the universal and homogeneous state? We've already addressed these questions rather quickly in passing. For Kojev, they're crucial. And I quote, this is the final uh, few paragraphs of the final lecture from 1939, the last uh, text he ever wrote on this. Um, and start the quote. The entire sphere of finitude, by the fact that it is itself something belonging to the senses, collapses into the true or truthful faith before the thought and intuition of the eternal, becoming here one and the same thing. All the gnats of subjectivity are burned up in this devouring fire, and even the conscience of this giving of oneself and out of this annihilation, he uses the word finichten, is annihilated. Annihilation is itself annihilated. <laughs> Vernichtung ist selbst vernichtet. So Kojev, this is a, that first line he quotes from Hegel, then he goes to his own gloss on that. Hegel knows it and says it, but he also says in one of his letters that this knowledge has cost him dearly. He speaks of a period of total depression that he lived through between the 25th and 30th year of his life, of a hypochondria that went bis zu Erlähmung aller Kräfte, to the point of paralysis of all his forces, and which arose precisely from the fact that he could not accept the necessary abandonment of individuality, that is in fact of humanity, that the idea of absolute knowledge demands. But finally he overcame this hypochondria and becoming wise through this last acceptance of death, he published a few years later, the first part of the system of knowledge entitled Science of the Phenomenology of the Spirit where he can reconcile himself with all that is and has been by declaring that there will never again be anything new on the earth, end of quote. The end of history is an abandonment of individuality, that is, in fact, of humanity, and thus of death as well. If Kojev seeks to cultivate revolutionary ardor in his students, this final comment is certainly bracing, if not rather devastating. The post-historical state is one of, and I quote, quote Kojev again, living bodies with human form, but emptied of spirit, end of quote. Another image Kojev offers to describe of what is left in, the post in this post-historical state. The question is, what does Kojev intend to do to his audience? He provides a drastic account of a humanity bereft of individuality that is nothing more than a grouping of bodies. But this account is quite consistent. The accession to a post-historical state for Kojev requires the separation of human and animal desire. The human being has become a point that interrupts the repetition of the animal world, a repetition that maintains a system of reliable continuances. Indeed, animals seek self-preservation as part of a larger economy of continuities that sustains the natural system. To the extent the slave overcomes the fear of death, he interrupts this natural system, and he does so through work. The final end of that work is to create a world in which the human being is master. But this world cannot be the natural system. Indeed, the slave's final desire to overcome the given is a desire to overcome the natural system in toto. How might we, entrenched as we are in the natural system, possibly come to understand the state 
that has no narrative can have no narrative, a state that is in many respects similar to that of the master, albeit with the major difference that the master faces death by risk, whereas the slave does so fundamentally through work. We may understand the state only subtractively or negatively. The progress of the slave is subtractive insofar as the slave peels off the layers of natural being that afflict and enslave it. The slave's progress is a freedom from predication or a form of self-negation. Hence, Kurzhev's claim about individuality is not so difficult to understand in this context. Arguably more difficult to understand is the dark image of bodies without spirit. But indeed, what is left after the human leaves, after the human has come to com complete itself? Bodies, pure materiality, whatever that might be. How can we grasp these bodies in any other way, even as a figure of speech? Kurzhev's radicality is described at the end of history as an essentially post-predicative state. Bodies without spirit, in this sense, are nothing else than matter. And no one has succeeded in explaining what matter in itself might be. Kozhev has, in effect, separated form from matter. He has reversed the progress of philosophy from Parmenides to Hegel, or he has fully outlined what it must entail. For Kozhev argues that the narrative of the slave is one in which time and the concept become one. It is the progressive infiltration of time into the concept. What Kozhev does not say so directly is that this identification is only possible in the end state where time and concept become one, an identification that in its silence equals the beginning of philosophy with Parmenides, thereby providing the necessary circularity and closure to history. But if this is the case, Kozhev cannot explain how he is able to declare that time and the concept have become one. To do so implies that time and the concept have not become one, because there is a discursive position that allows one to describe that unity, a position at once in and outside the circle. If this position were not so, it would no longer be able to declare itself as such. In other words, and this is a crucial point, the unity of time and concept eliminates reflection or consciousness of any X. Neither philosophy nor any speech is at all possible. The abandonment of individuality is indeed central to these two primary narratives Kozhev develops in his lectures on the phenomenology, that of the master and slave and that of the ascent of final wisdom in the figure of the sage. The narrative of master and slave ends with the establishment of the universal and homogeneous state wherein all citizens come to recognize themselves and their fellow citizens. The ideal citizen is the sage who is not only a reflection of all his fellow citizens, but the one whose thinking articulates the transformation of the inegalitarian relation of master and slave to the completed egalitarianism of the universal and homogeneous state. The most interesting aspect of the abandonment of individuality is that Kozhev conceives of it as the perfection of human freedom and of humanity itself. To be truly free and human, one must abandon one's individuality and humanity so conceived. This equation of human freedom with the abandonment of individuality is hardly new. A number of religious traditions depend on it, but Kozhev is avowedly, is avowedly atheist, an abandonment of individuality for him, though bearing an obvious structural similarity to the abandonment of individuality in communion with God, is much closer to certain currents in the Buddhist tradition, which Kozhev otherwise referred to as an atheistic religion. The crucial proposition of Kozhev's thinking about freedom as abandonment of individuality, however, is somewhat more provocative, though linked to several mystical traditions. The ultimate proof of human freedom is the willingness to commit suicide, to let go of one's individual, thus material existence, once and for all. Kozhev argues that suicide so conceived is the most truly human and emancipatory act, 
And the, he, and the obvious corollary is that anyone who is unwilling to commit suicide is not fully human and is thus not achieved and cannot achieve genuine emancipation. To the contrary, those who are not willing to, do the volunt- uh, to uh, die voluntarily are trapped and well, and well, defensive individuality is the exoteric rationale. The more pervasive resistance to suicide comes from the so-called instinct of self-preservation expressed in the putative need to live, which of course is always rooted in the individual because as Kozhev says, only individuals die. The word instinct is the operative term here since instinct applies a natural disposition that by analogy with the animal world cannot be varied. Instinct is the expression of natural necessity, the way of nature. Hence, if human beings act in accordance with this instinct, they are hardly human for Kozhev. They are nothing more than birds or bees performing a role assigned to them in a vast natural system that has nothing to do with the human or with history. To act in accordance with the instinct of self-preservation is a form of servitude. As yet not recognized as such, that recognition comes from the combat, which initiates the master and slave relation. And for Kozhev, there is no possibility for the expression of the genuinely human, as long as the instinct for self-preservation is at work as the primary law in the way we act. For Kozhev, both the human and history are effectively the same and are born only from the rejection of instinct and the natural system as such. History, in fact, begins only with the rejection of instinct and the world as a natural system. There is no history without this rejection nor anything resembling humanity. Kozhev identifies rejection as the initially free and negative act, the true beginning Natural history is a contradictio in adjecto. Kozhev's concept of freedom emerges as a rejection or negation of instinct and of nature as such. It is thus also a rejection of the body to the extent that the instinct for self-preservation is based on the fear of bodily annihilation. If we bring things together for a moment here, individuality becomes identified with the body and the bodily imperative to avoid death, an imperative that includes the notion of the immaterial soul the various forms of resurrection, which Khrushchev considers the one uh, theistic mistake of Christianity. With all due concision, freedom for Khrushchev is freedom from nature, from the imposition of natural necessity in all its forms, including those desires that are ostensibly the fruit of freedom for the modern bourgeois. In contrast to Hobbes and the Hobbesian notion of satisfaction as the fulfillment of natural desires, the most important of which is the desire to avoid violent death. Kozhev maintains that this kind of satisfaction is nothing less than servile bestialization and the rejection of the possibility of being human, of making sense of humanity as free as other than and in opposition to nature. To get a full scope of Kozhev's radicality, I cite here a passage from a later work, the remarkable work on Kant, uh, that he wrote in 1953, uh, and it begins to take flight in the first 20 pages with a interesting and somewhat convoluted discussion of uh, Buddhism, which I'll quote. Uh, This is Kozhev. For the Buddhist, the natural life is eternal, or at least co-eternal with time. It is sufficient to act in any way whatsoever, to act from desire, karma, to be reborn, and thus to live indefinitely. On the contrary, one must do something special in order to extinguish oneself, nirvana, after one's natural death. To it, i.e. to acquaint oneself with the dogma, dharma, and to apply the discipline, vinaya, which consists, moreover, in doing nothing or doing nothing, i.e. the 
way way of the Taoists to do non-doing. That is to suppress the desire, raga, that leads necessarily to action, determining even if moral, a future life. Now, as far as he is religious, the Buddhist admits the impossibility of satisfaction in this worldly life. Religious satisfaction or salvation can only consist in extinction. Since even if he is reborn, which is possible if one applies a certain moral as Buddha or the Supreme God, he lives a worldly life and cannot obtain the religious satisfaction that is the only true value for him. What is truly remarkable uh, is that the Buddha advises against the supreme morality that divinizes man because having become God, that is perfectly happy or blessed, he is no longer able even to recognize the unworthy character of this blessedness in such a manner that the very idea of genuine satisfaction, i.e. happiness of which he is worthy, becomes forever inaccessible to him in such a manner that he is condemned to eternal life or co-eternal with time. Of course, satisfaction is only lived during the life of the Buddha, that is, of the accomplished Buddhist, and there's nothing else in the final account but faith in the sense of subjective certitude concerning expectation of death at some point. Close for the Buddha and deliberately far away, indeed indefinite for the Bodhisattva, definitely and for good. And this early on in the discussion of Kant and the critique of pure reason. I end the quote. The crucial proposition of this passage is that no life can be truly blessed, dignified or free. The worldly life of the individual is base and senseless, provided the true sense of life is nirvana. That is, while one is alive, one remains a servant to the vulgar necessities of life itself, no matter how one, uh, excuse me, no matter how one casts them. One remains a slave, an individual, and selfish self. And those who think that they thus become, or they may, they may become blessed, selfless, or otherwise free through adherence to morality or the law or the truth, are not even able to recognize the unworthy character of their lives, since they deceive themselves so effectively. For one who claims to overcome individuality, while still living, has fallen prey to a perpetually tempting and base deception. Now, if this is so, then what sort of state can the final state be, the universal and homogeneous state, or to put it with mild irony, Kantian purgatory? Well, this state plays an important ideological role in Hegel lectures, Kozhev's most expansive treatment of his structure is in the outline of a phenomenology of right. This long text offers an overview of the basic elements that pertain to the universal and homogeneous state as legal structures, or structures of what Kozhev refers to as a system of droit, right or recht. This system of right creates a calculus or logic of action that is explicitly hegemonic, permitting no remainder or custom or of custom or justice external to the system of right it proposes. It is thus universalist and final, or at the very least points to a final system of regulation in the universal and homogeneous state. The first section of the treatise provides an account of the basic unit that ties the entire text together, the uh, juridical situation in Kozhev's words. The juridical situation is a formal relation between three parties. Two agents in potential conflict with each other, A and B, he gives the A and B, and a third intervening figure C, that serves to police and adjudicate any actual con conflicts. Kozhev indicates that this relation is not an abstraction, but names the most simple possible relation that may give rise to intervention or adjudication by the third party, uh, C. Kozhev holds that there is no juridical situation 
when there are only two parties involved, uh, be, simply because there is no possibility for adjudication. Adjudication is the fundamental notion in the treatise, at least the first part of the treatise. Adjudication presupposes a conflict for which there is an established and universally agreed resolution procedure. In a conflict with only two parties, there can be no assumed resolution procedure. Indeed, the assumed resolution procedure is, according to Kuljev, the trajectory of history itself as the history of the master-slave relation. Therefore, a resolution procedure is only possible at the end of history when the conflict between master and slave has concluded. Kuljev does not put it in this way in the opening section of the treatise. Instead, he addresses the distinction between the political and the juridical relation by arguing that the former presupposes conflict between friend and enemy, following Carl Schmidt, whereas the latter presupposes a more general amity. In other words, the juridical relation presupposes general agreement among the parties as to the procedures institution of conflict resolution. It thus assumes that the desire for recognition which gives rise to conflicts has been satisfied, that politics has been once and for all eliminated. A nagging concern emerges here, of course, if the universal and homogeneous state represents the final overcoming of individuality, why would there be any need for a juridical apparatus? Surely the abolition of individuality would bring with it the abolition of selfish desire, as in recognition. That is the perennial source of conflict, of the temptation to place one's own over others. The universal and homogeneous state as a system of right would seem to involve a contradiction. Kozhev's treatise on right qualifies this obvious implication somewhat by suggesting, as I said earlier, that the universal and homogeneous state is, in its purity, a limit case. As such, possible to think, but impossible to achieve in action. He therefore states, and makes it rather clear, that the final state is a state of terminal non-finality, if you like. Nonetheless, the comprehensive teaching of the treatise makes no sense without another firm presupposition that the juridical signals the ultimate end of the political, of struggle of history, individuality as such, where the political finally ends. The juridical truly comes into its own as the authoritative ordering of action in the universal homogeneous state. Conflict has come to an end. The juridical system becomes a sort of surrogate instinct a new or second nature to correct the error that conflict represents and to create the groundwork for a terminal condition in which individuality understood as error will be definitively overcome or disciplined. Viewed in this light, individuality is a deviation or error to be suppressed by a juridical system, an administrative state, and this suppression is essential to the universal and homogeneous state itself that thereby offers the most radical emancipation from the fear of death itself. For if one no longer seeks to preserve one's individuality, one is no longer afraid to die. And as Kozhev says elsewhere, no, as I, and I've repeated, only individuals die. To return to the main thread of our account, the essence of history for Kozhev is the struggle for emancipation from individuality, from error, from the instinct for self-preservation that is the root of all conflict, illusion. By establishing equality of recognition in the universal and homogeneous state, Kurjev creates a final order in which all are one and one is all, in which the I is we and the we is I. The universal and homogeneous state purports to create thereby the most radical freedom, the freedom from the fear of death, 
Since the fundamental equation with which we be began, that between the end of individuality or suicide and freedom has been incarnated in a necessarily final social organization. But as we have also noted, Kojev is hardly sanguine about the possibility of realizing this final homogeneous plenitude. The tension in the individual between self-preservation and self-abnegation or immolation admits of no easy resolution, provided the only resolution is suicide or death. If Kojev promotes the universal and homogeneous state precisely as the locus of this resolution, he also appears to deny that this final state is capable of achieving practically the full freedom that he otherwise associates with suicide. We are left with the tension that comes to the surface in lectures on absolute knowing, as well as in different terms in the, in the vision of the post-historical state. Uh, and uh, these descriptions of living bodies, which I've mentioned, deprived of spirit, refer to the complete bestialization of the human being after the end of history, suggesting that the juridical mechanisms of the universal homogeneous state indeed offer a sort of substitute for animal instinct that eliminates the error of the human for good while leaving behind a spiritless beast which all conflict has been definitively resolved. Here is the administrative state at its most sinister for those who value a kind of freedom, that of the individual whose cogency as freedom Kozhev denies. Given the foregoing, it might be well or, simp or simplest to argue that a graduated reading is the most attractive and consistent. The universal homogeneous state constituting a transitional uh, or a perpetually transitional political structure on the way to the attainment of the complete abandonment of individuality in the juridical administrative state. Yet, of course, Kojev's more radical position is difficult to avoid. According to that position, no life can achieve full emancipation, since individuality cannot be eliminated other than through death. And without full emancipation, it is not at all clear what sense can be given to emancipation at all. After all, what is partial emancipation? especially if that emancipation consists of an unabated war with the individual, corporeal, and material self. Again, we come to a precariously graduated position where the best we may achieve is a social organization that maximally suppresses individuality and the myriad temptations to deception that it offers. From this viewpoint, the universal and homogeneous state may seem more Kantian than Hegelian, an attempt to achieve a goal that is impossible by definition. Yet Kojev refuses to accept that impossibility, at least on the surface, where he frequently proclaims the end of history as definitive and actual, either in the Napoleonic or Stalinist state. He thereby leaves a basic tension for us to resolve, or he ends up promoting a state that does little more than act as a purgatorial waiting room on the way to true but impossible salvation. Kojev is not always guarded about the basic trust of his ostensibly emancipatory thinking. And this is a quote. The suppression of man, that is of time, that is of action, for the benefit of state being, that is, or static being, pardon me, that is of space, that is of nature, is thus the suppression of error for the benefit of the truth. And if history is certainly the history of human errors, man himself is perhaps only an error of nature that by chance freedom was not immediately eliminated. End of quote. This is as succinct a description of Kojev's humanism as one is likely to find in any of his writings. The irony, of course, is quite vulgar. The end of humanity, the properly human pursuit, is to dispense with humanity or the human via the necessary abandonment of individuality, that is, in the, in the fact of humanity, as combining differing orientations which simply do not admit of reconciliation. 
One has either the spectacle of unrelenting selfishness and violence, a reign of error that if uh, it were more honest, would celebrate error and violence as the very essence of our humanity, or a more pure and radical humanity that pose, imposes as its goal the most radical suppression of humanity itself, of individuality and selfishness in the ostensibly peaceful and putatively Stalinist universal and homogeneous state of trained and unconscious beasts. Is Kozhev really so unclear though? Perhaps he is if we take his curious use of human to denote both the capacity to be in error and to terminate error. But I might suggest that he is otherwise very clear, even primitively so. One is faced either with the prospect of unceasing conflict, however disguised, vanity, cruelty, and hierarchy, as opposed to a suppression of individuality so radical that it makes everyday Stalinism seem a horribly distorted, if not monstrous, incarnation of the purity of the universal and homogeneous state. Even the latter is not radical enough for Kurzhev, however, because it is still a compromise that avoids the best and most beautiful life for Kurzhev, the one that frees itself from life. Thank you. Thank you.